All right, I'm going to get things rolling. <clears throat> I'll say welcome again to everybody. We have about uh, about 40 in attendance right now. We have uh, many more registered, so hopefully over the first couple of minutes of this, we'll have a few more people come in. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to say welcome again. Uh, for people who don't know me, my name is Nat Paul, and I am OGEN's Director of Educator Support. Um, <clears throat> this is the second in our summer series of webinars that are uh, replacing what was normally be our Summer Law Institute. Uh, and they've been going really, really well. I should uh, take time off the top to point out that we do have four more in the series coming up. August 5th, we have one on the environmental challenge being brought against the Ontario government by a group of students. August 13th, we're talking about COVID and its impact on various areas of law. August 18th, we have a neat session on fertility law. And on the 27th, <clears throat> there's gonna be OGEN staff discussing the ways in which our organization is, mo is modifying our practices and what we have uh, in, in store for teachers to help you um, <clears throat> as you see what the school year is gonna unfold like. So uh, like many of you, uh, we are waiting for August 4th with bated breath so that we have some sense of how it is that we're all going to be learning and working together going forward. Um, <clears throat> I am the least important voice here today. Uh, I have some colleagues helping me behind the scenes. Christy Pagnuti is our program manager and is the main organizer for all things institutional and uh, this series in particular. Uh, Michelle Thompson also is here. She's our manager of legal and digital development. She's managing questions and running things on the back end, which is super because it really shouldn't be me. Uh, and finally, uh, I need to acknowledge uh, our fantastic high school intern who comes to us through the laws program, which uh, many of you may be involved with at your schools. She's Kelly Chung from Harvard Collegiate, and she has been fantastic. We're sorry to see her week with us ending this year, or, or her time with us ending this week. Um, Michelle's already said this, but I'll reiterate, please keep microphones off and cameras off. This helps us with bandwidth. When there are questions, and there will for sure be questions, you can type them into the Q&A or you can put them into the chat. We are monitoring them and depending on whether they're super uh, pertinent to what's actually being talked about at the moment, we may pass them on to, uh, to Justice Sawson. Uh, there will be time, 15 minutes or so for Q&A at the end as well. Um, I would note as well that the presentation is being recorded and we will be posting it on OGEN's website soon. We should be able to get the video linked to you folks in a matter of a couple of days. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so I'm super happy to be doing this. Um, one of the things that we traditionally do at this point is, uh, is a kind of a, of a land acknowledgement. This becomes interesting given the logistics of virtual meeting. Um, in addition to this, there is a, a sort of interest underfoot to really rethinking what land acknowledgements are supposed to do. Um, we've been very much impacted by uh, the perspective of, uh, of a wonderful lawyer and educator activist who's been working with us, that's Leah Horzempa, who has given us a lot of really good ideas about what we can do to make a land acknowledgement an ongoing active thing. Um, <clears throat> so while I will say, as we normally do, that at least I'm in Toronto and many of us are, which is the traditional territory of Mississauga, the New Credit First Nation, as well as Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous peoples, it's not just history. Uh, these, are, these are folks who have an ongoing presence in our communities, so we do not relegate them to being an article of the past. Um, and we, in order to keep this from being just a box that we tick, we're encouraging everybody to think about an acknowledgement as part of an ongoing embrace of a reconciliation effort. Um, <clears throat> thinking about something which is particular to the day and the kind of meeting that we're having. And so 
because we're talking about legal cases and precedent and, and things like that, it makes me think about how often we approach treaties as things that happened in the past, um, you know, the ancient history from a long time ago. And it seems to me like this is a good time to point out that when we say things like we're all treaty people, these are actually ongoing live legal arrangements that are in place right now. And not all of the country is ceded territory. So it might be of interest to some folks to know that there is actually a super innovative new uh, treaty under negotiation right now, which covers Western Quebec and Eastern Canada. So that's the, that's the Algonquin Treaty negotiation. And if it's of interest, I can put a link up in the chat so that you can see that and see what's going on with it. This will be covering 1.2 million people. So not small at all. Much of BC is unseated, the Maritimes are unseated, and it's really interesting to look at treaties by thinking about what's not covered by treaties some of the time. Um, <clears throat> so uh, with that said, I'm gonna introduce our speaker. This is one of our most popular series. Uh, and so it's a great pleasure to me to be able to work, to welcome uh, Justice Lauren Sawson, uh, who will be familiar to many of you as a frequent contributor to the ongoing uh, legal discourse in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, Justice Austin was appointed to the Superior Court of Justice in December of 2018. Uh, prior to this, he was Professor and Dean of Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. Before that, uh, Justice Austin was Professor with the Faculty of Law at U of T. He is a former Associate Dean at U of T and served as the inaugural director of the U of T Center for the Legal Profession. Uh, Justice Sawson's teaching and research have spanned administrative and constitutional law, civil litigation, legal ethics, and the judicial process. Speaking of judicial process, Justice Sawson clerked for the former Chief Justice Antonio Lamer at the Supreme Court of Canada, has been an associate in law with Columbia Law School, and a former litigation lawyer with the firm of Borden and Elliott, which is now BLG, uh, Borden Lender Base, has doctorates from U of T in political science and from Columbia University in law, uh, Justice Austin has published proliferately, uh, 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 including books, journal articles, reviews, uh, administrative law and practice, principles and advocacy uh, in 2018, administrative law and context in 2018, middle income access to justice, uh, and the list goes on and on. There are six or seven more of these. Um, <clears throat> in addition to which, Justice Austin has served as the research director for the Law Society of Upper Canada's task force into the independence of the bar, commissioned papers for the Gomery Inquiry, Ipperwash Inquiry, and the Gouge Inquiry, and served as vice chair for the Ontario Health Proficiency Appeal and Review Board and Health Services and uh, Appeal and Review Board. Um, in addition to that, he is a legal firecracker with lots to say about lots of what's going on. So I'm gonna get out of the way and turn it over to you, Justice Sawson. I'll be off camera and I leave them in your very able hands. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Nat, for the very generous introduction and uh, the acknowledgements and helping to get us started. And uh, to Christy, Michelle, Kelly, uh, all those who have made uh, this uh, very uh, uh, distinct uh, Summer Law Institute for 2020 happen. Uh, it is uh, terrific uh, to be a part of this. Welcome to those uh, who are tuning in and welcome back uh, to those who uh, we're also there in uh, August last summer when I did uh, my first run through on the uh, five most significant cases uh, coming uh, out of um, uh, the uh, Supreme Court. And I'm delighted to be back uh, with another uh, five uh, really uh, uh, interesting, provocative cases, many of which I hope find their way into 
your discussions uh, as educators in uh, your classes, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Uh, the Q&A uh, uh, QA function uh, uh, should be at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Uh, please use it as I go along if there's clarifications uh, that uh, would be helpful and otherwise uh, use it for broader questions. And as uh, Nat said, there'll be time for, um, uh, for those at the end. Um, I'm going to uh, start uh, a slide deck uh, now. So it's just going to take um, a moment to share my screen and we'll see if the uh, Zoom gods are kind uh, today. So just uh, bear with me as we start the slideshow. All right, so again, uh, if there are technical uh, glitches, um, uh, my OGEN colleagues will uh, pop in to advise, but otherwise I'm assuming you can see uh, the first uh, screen, which is um, uh, the cover. And uh, even though um, uh, we're uh, looking um, at the five most significant cases of the year, uh, of course, there are many more than five that one could talk about. Uh, some were just getting uh, headlines this week, uh, the uh, ruling on the, uh, uh, the um, uh, safe country um, uh, rule uh, for immigration and uh, uh, refugee purposes, um, and the charter was uh, uh, just decided by the federal court. It's generating a lot of controversy, the safe third country um, uh, rule being struck down. A number of other uh, cases that uh, are attracting attention across the country and some of those, no doubt, will make it to the Supreme uh, Court uh, in due course and be a subject of discussion. But I uh, tried, as I did last year, to really look at what are the cases we're still going to be talking about uh, five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, that uh, came out of the Supreme Court uh, between uh, last August uh, and uh, today. Excuse me. So the um, uh, the the five uh, that I've chosen and that I'll discuss briefly in uh, in this uh, this talk uh, are first um, uh, Canada and Vavilov, which is actually the only 2019 decision. It uh, was a holiday um, present by the Supreme Court of Canada in uh, late December 2019, and uh, really has reshaped the field of administrative law. Uh, in ways that are continuing to um, uh, influence uh, courts and tribunals across the country. And again, I'll give you uh, uh, a flavor at least of, uh, of why uh, the case has uh, been so significant. Uh, and for each of these, I'll give you a snapshot of the case, but really focus on the takeaways. What, uh, what uh, is the reason these cases have uh, significance? Uh, and I'll be drawing, I should add, um, to a considerable extent on the case in brief um, service of the Supreme Court that uh, tries to distill uh, cases uh, in very accessible language. Um, uh, and uh, and, and I, again, I think is a terrific teaching tool for those who haven't tried it out. I have hyperlinks to each case uh, to that Supreme Court service. The slide deck will be made available uh, after today's talk, and I hope it serves uh, as one of many resources that um, assist you in uh, planning for, again, uh, how to tackle uh, these current developments uh, in, in your own work. 
Uh, second case will be uh, a reference uh, uh, into the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, um, and uh, it's the first, again, of a series of 2020 decisions. Uh, Araya and Nevson Resources, uh, dealing with uh, the role of international law and allegations of uh, serious uh, human rights abuses against a Canadian mining company that engages with those international law concepts. Uh, Uber uh, and Heller, uh, a case, uh, as you would expect from the reference to Uber, that uh, very much engages with the gig economy and particularly uh, how the uh, tech companies um, uh, frame their relationship with uh, those uh, who carry out the work uh, as employees, as contractors, and what happens when there's a dispute between those individuals and these large companies. So more on that in a minute. Uh, and finally, the uh, Ahmad case um, dealing with uh, entrapment in criminal law, but it happened to come out just a week after uh, the, uh, uh, the protests uh, had begun uh, in the U.S. Uh, in, uh, in June on systemic racism uh, and a range of uh, issues that have roiled um, not only the U.S., uh, but uh, the globe in terms of focusing on uh, systemic racism in the justice system. And, that was uh, an aspect raised by the majority of the, uh, the court in that case. Uh, and, uh, and again, I'll touch on that. In addition to some other notable developments at the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, in fact, indeed, on the response to those protests, uh, in addition to some other issues. So, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, that's uh, what's to come. So let me begin. Uh, with Vavilov, which, um, uh, as some of you uh, uh, may know, is the case involving the real-life version of what became uh, the Hollywood um, uh, series, The Americans. This is the illegals program that the uh, Russians um, uh, embarked on over uh, a series of decades in which uh, people were placed into different identities to lead uh, ordinary lives, uh, but uh, covertly to carry on uh, espionage uh, for the Russians. So those of you who haven't seen the series, uh, uh, it's compelling uh, watching, but uh, doesn't involve Canada uh, to any great extent. And yet um, uh, uh, Alex uh, Alexander Vavilov, uh, or Alex uh, Foley as he was um, uh, born, uh, is the, again, uh, real life version of this. Uh, an individual who uh, grew up in Canada, later lived um, uh, in other countries, uh, and uh, only in 2010, so uh, when uh, he was uh, uh, already uh, a teenager, did he discover that his parents were part of this program. Uh, fast forward a couple of um, years later, he applies for a renewal of his Canadian passport. Having been born in Canada, of course, uh, he always had one. Uh, and after a series of uh, back and forth, um, the government decided to reject his application uh, for a passport because it rejected uh, his entitlement under a provision of the Citizenship Act uh, that excludes the children of diplomats from foreign countries uh, from eligibility for Canadian citizenship. So anyway, that's the, the, the backdrop. But the uh, case really... Um, uh, was a vehicle for the Supreme Court to explore the judicial review framework. That is to say, when the government makes decisions, could be a minister or delegate or tribunal or agency, when any part of that executive branch makes a decision, 
The question is on what grounds and with what kind of scrutiny uh, can it be challenged in a court? And this field is called the standard of review. And it really captures the idea uh, that uh, the court will not simply put itself into the shoes of that decision maker, in this case, a registrar making a determination on citizenship and say, what would I do? But rather looks at what the decision maker did and asks the question in, in the overwhelming majority of cases, apart from some exceptions that uh, we don't have time to explore, uh, asks the question, was it reasonable? And there's a framework for how to determine reasonableness that the Vavilov case and two others dealing with, uh, of all things, um, uh, the CRTC's decisions about Super Bowl ads uh, coming from the U.S. and how they're broadcast in Canada. These together uh, formed a trilogy on the standard of review. And in addition to a finding that deference or this reasonableness review would be the appropriate way for the courts to look at these decisions, uh, the court went on to say uh, what that review focuses on. And it focuses really on justification. Did the decision maker demonstrate, usually through reasons, uh, that uh, she or he wrestled with the appropriate issues, uh, discussed and justified the decision that they reached, uh, and did so in a way that didn't uh, misconstrue what the legal requirements uh, were in this case. So that's the uh, reason Vavilov uh, is uh, significant in, in one respect, uh, but um, uh, if I were to uh, uh, give you the uh, spoiler alert uh, for those who haven't uh, read it yet, uh, the conclusion of the court with respect to uh, Mr. Vavilov is that the registrar denied him a passport unreasonably. Uh, in other words, uh, treated his situation as akin to a situation of the child of a foreign diplomat, uh, which is manifestly not the case. These weren't diplomats, they were covert spies. They weren't, in other words, part of that community for which that aspect of the Citizenship Act was created, where uh, there is a set of privileges and responsibilities of foreign, uh, foreign diplomats. Uh, so uh, Mr. Vavilov gets his passport, but more importantly, we get a whole new framework of how government has to justify decisions uh, if they're going to survive judicial review. And I've got a picture of uh, our nemesis uh, COVID-19 there for a reason, uh, and that is that this framework, among other applications, has been coming up in the lower courts quite frequently around challenges to uh, COVID-19 orders and restrictions. Uh, the change, for example, in uh, hospital policies to limit uh, visitors or chief medical officer of health uh, directives and a host of other settings that by next year, uh, no doubt will uh, feature in, uh, in this review with appellate decisions uh, coming as well. Uh, but I want to make that link again to show the relevance of a case that can seem quite abstract on the standard of review uh, but is quite concrete when one then looks at how challenges to uh, decision-making uh, will unfold in the courts. Uh, so for that reason, uh, before I leave Avalov, uh, let me again just say uh, for any issues to do with administrative law, uh, uh, which covers everything from procedural uh, fairness to the nature of reasonableness, 
uh, Vavilov is going to be a point of departure for, for the years to come. So moving to the second case, uh, which again attracted a fair bit of media attention, uh, reference uh, into the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, uh, which again was a, a piece of legislation that had a very unusual trajectory on which the government asked uh, the uh, courts, different provincial governments first, uh, notably in Quebec, asked the courts to determine whether this law was constitutional. This made it up to the Supreme Court of Canada. That's the decision uh, that I'm looking at. And the argument uh, uh, really turns on whether this law, which uh, I'll, let me just jump to it, uh, at least its core provision uh, right now, uh, law that makes it uh, a prohibition for anyone to require a genetic test uh, as a condition of providing goods or services, entering into contracts, and particularly insurance, where this had been developing uh, as a requirement, for example, for life insurance, that you first undergo a genetic test. Uh, and um, uh, by making this uh, prohibited, uh, the protection uh, was said to encourage more people to seek out testing uh, without fear that it was going to lead then to services being denied or that it would be used uh, in uh, third-party contexts over which the person whose genetic profile was being uh, tested would have no uh, control. So a privacy concern as well. All right, well, the, uh, the issue came down to this. Uh, was this legislation a valid exercise of Canada's criminal law power under the old Constitution Act of 1867 or the BNA Act for people of a certain generation like me, uh, which uh, again um, can cover a range of protection and promotion of, of, uh, of health, uh, among other concerns for privacy, etc. Or is this really legislation aimed at how we engage in contracts for insurance, for goods and services, which falls squarely into provincial authority uh, under the, uh, the Division of Powers in the Constitution Act of 1867. Uh, so the Quebec Court of Appeal had said uh, this is clearly about contracts. You see contracts in the terms, uh, struck it down. But uh, by a narrow 5-4 majority, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, upheld it uh, and upheld it uh, as a valid exercise of that criminal law power uh, because it combated uh, genetic discrimination and protected health, a concurring uh, decision by two other judges that saw it uh, less as uh, directed at discrimination, more at control over one's own genetic information, but the same result. So those are the five uh, who ruled in favor of upholding it. Um, and a, a notable uh, dissent written by um, uh, Justice uh, Nicholas uh, Kassir uh, took the opposite view, uh, the Quebec Court of Appeal view, that this is really uh, about contract law and therefore can't be a valid exercise of the federal government's uh, constitutional authority. I say notable because it's the first major decision written by Justice Kassir, who is, uh, as many of you will know, um, uh, he is in his first year of his appointment to the Supreme Court, so lots of eyes on him for uh, his style, his commitments, and so uh, this case uh, in which he was joined by the Chief Justice among uh, two other judges, uh, a notable, close uh, decision. 
The, as I said, it had a distinct um, a trajectory. Uh, the, the case actually um, uh, came about because of a private member's bill. Uh, Liberals, both in the Senate and the House of Commons, passed it, uh, but without the government's approval. And in fact, the, the cabinet uh, voted against it. So the Attorney General, uh, was uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould at the time, uh, took uh, the position uh, joining with the Attorney General of Quebec and other provinces that this was unconstitutional. So in the Supreme Court, you have the government arguing that its own law uh, was beyond its constitutional authority. The Supreme Court somewhat awkwardly had to appoint an amicus to make the argument for why it would be constitutional, uh, in addition to some interveners who took that role. And of course, that was the winning position. So uh, very odd to see the Attorney General for Canada opposing Canada uh, in, uh, uh, in justifying and defending its own uh, law on constitutional grounds. Certainly, I can't think of another case in which that's happened. So what are the takeaways? Well, uh, again, we have this expansion of where the federal government can legislate around uh, genetic discrimination, autonomy, privacy, equity, public health, that could have broader ramifications for the future. Uh, and as uh, Marcella Day um, uh, said in a media account um, when the case was coming out, uh, that uh, to take a genetic test that could save your life should not come at the price of you not being hired or promoted, able to adopt a child or to travel, not being able to get insurance or access childcare. And that really, I think, is the uh, rationale for the majority uh, in, in its uh, upholding of this um, legislation. So moving uh, to the third uh, case and mindful of uh, uh, time, uh, let me um, uh, say that uh, much of this case is, is a great one-stop shopping uh, case for all of international customary law. This is a uh, international law can often be broken down into laws arising from treaties, uh, conventions, and, uh, uh, and, and agreements, multilateral and, uh, and transnational. But there's also this body of customary law, law that is said to, uh, again, exist even without uh, Canada signing on to any uh, treaty about it, uh, that uh, uh, protects some uh, core uh, human rights um, uh, and uh, and related protections for for all people uh, against uh, again the uh, typically the acts of uh, states. In this case, there was a lawsuit against a Canadian mining company that owned a mine in uh, Eritrea that was alleged to have engaged in compelling people to work in uh, uh, very dangerous conditions. Uh, so torts of unlawful confinement, uh, negligence. Uh, and forced labor, slavery, cruelty, crimes against humanity, degradation. So a, a very disturbing uh, case in terms of the alleged facts. Um, and the defense was really a doctrine that uh, exists in the UK, but had never really been confirmed in Canada called the Act of State Doctrine, where the courts of one state can't uh, find the actions of another state to have been uh, illegal on uh, these kinds of uh, grounds. And the uh, Supreme Court of Canada says, well, that just doesn't exist in Canada. That's not a bar uh, to moving forward with a suit. I should add that this lawsuit was only at the stage of written pleadings. So no evidence had been tested. Uh, there hadn't been a trial. Nothing um, had happened beyond that exchange of claims and defenses. So we don't know 
uh, yet uh, what, what will be shown. But the court nonetheless said that it's not plain and obvious that this couldn't succeed if there's evidence there to substantiate. And that's the test when it's at such an early stage. Uh, could it uh, possibly succeed or is it plain and obvious that it couldn't? So court said it's not plain and obvious that it couldn't succeed. And more importantly, that customary international law is part of Canada's common law. Uh, and it becomes part of Canada's uh, common law automatically, uh, as opposed to those treaties and conventions, which only become part of our legal system when ratified uh, by the legislature and brought in. So in this case, uh, the court didn't say that Nevson was responsible for violating any of these workers' rights in the ways alleged, but that it ought to have its day in court to make that case. And it can use customary international law that has what are called peremptory norms, uh, again, about the uh, uh, preservation of, um, uh, of human rights, and uh, which would be violated by, of course, any uh, examples of slavery, forced labor, uh, the other things alleged. Uh, so that will be the basis now of a major uh, case um, uh, moving forward. And here's a picture of the, uh, uh, the mine. It doesn't come across uh, uh, quite um, uh, as clearly as I would have liked. Um, and it's uh, the Bisha mine is the subsidiary uh, owned by Nevson. So it also has a Canadian multinational resource extraction uh, dynamic uh, to this case as well. And of course, the Eritrean uh, workers are uh, bringing this case because uh, they were accepted as refugees and now able uh, uh, to um, uh, bring this case in Canada. So I mentioned the uh, takeaways um, on uh, the case itself, but there is a broader theme that Justice Abella, who writes for the majority, talks about in, in very, uh, again, uh, dramatic language. Um, uh, of the phoenix that rose from the ashes of World War II uh, and declared global war on human rights abuses. And there's a particularly compelling story, of course, for Justice Abella, who herself uh, rose from the ashes of World War II. She was born in a displaced persons camp uh, in uh, the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust uh, before her family made their way to Canada. Uh, and so she's writing about a, a, a journey, a legal journey, that in some ways has uh, a direct uh, implications and parallels for her very compelling uh, life story. All right, so let me um, deal with these last um, uh, two cases uh, in the 10 uh, minutes or so uh, that I have uh, left. Uh, one, again, uh, involves um, one of the biggest um, icons of the gig economy, uh, Uber. Uh, and a class action uh, against that company seeking uh, a range of damages uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, I think, the neighborhood of $400 million uh, for treating uh, its drivers uh, as independent contractors rather than as workers who would have the protections of the Employment Standards Act. Now, when Uber received this uh, uh, legal complaint from uh, Heller, the representative plaintiff of this class, uh, Uber pointed to a provision that every one of these drivers signs in which they agree that disputes will be resolved through mediation and arbitration in the Netherlands, uh, where the company is resident, um, which of course uh, is at the expense of the party seeking the service. So 
uh, an Uber driver, in order to have any dispute resolved, would have to pay $14,500 U.S. Uh, in legal fees in order just to initiate that process. Uh, and in this case, that would represent uh, uh, the representative plaintiff's entire annual income uh, from Uber. So uh, Uber um, was uh, uh, taking the position that all these drivers didn't have to join, but they did and they signed this contract and they should be held to its terms. Heller took the view and the class took the view uh, that this was unconscionable, uh, this clause, and therefore it can't be enforceable, that somehow just to resolve a dispute, they would have to spend uh, an amount equivalent to their annual salary. Uh, and the majority of the Supreme Court, uh, again, uh, a somewhat narrow decision, um, but agrees with, um, uh, with Heller that the clause um, uh, can't be enforced and was invalid uh, because of uh, this doctrine of unconscionability. Um, and the, the fact that the fees were so out of proportion to uh, the kind of um, uh, income and salaries of Uber drivers really meant that it was a bar to uh, holding Uber accountable uh, in the ways uh, that dispute resolution um, uh, has to uh, permit. And in particular, the court was mindful of the extreme inequality of the bargaining powers of uh, these two, uh, Uber on the one hand and uh, driver on the other, uh, and that this arrangement was uh, not one that anyone would ever enter into if they uh, 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 didn't have to. In other words, like many of these agreements uh, that are, are signed as a condition for getting a necessary service, uh, it may have fine print that may say things about arbitration uh, privately done, and this is a common feature of uh, many of these companies. But the court's saying, you know, that that's not a realistic view of two parties entering into a contract and agreeing to its terms. It's one contra uh, party imposing a contract on the other where there really isn't um, uh, that ability to make a choice. Uh, and again, uh, there's uh, both a concurring uh, judge, um, a dissenting uh, uh, judge, but uh, the majority's decision uh, has uh, implications for not just Uber, but the whole uh, gig economy. Uh, I won't be able to, to give you all of them in this uh, short review, but let me uh, touch on a few. Uh, one is that uh, these provisions are uh, are proliferating in a number of uh, these uh, settings, again, with uh, independent contractors, uh, and the arrangements are not to be able to go to court, but instead having to go to arbitration, uh, and contracting out of, in that sense, the Employment Standards Act. Those are all now going to be suspect, depending on how this case unfolds. At the moment, we, again, don't have a case that's been heard at trial or evidence that's been filed. This was Uber's attempt to stop it before it started and compel Heller and the others in this class to go to uh, Holland and uh, have it resolved by arbitration there. So the Supreme Court said, no, this will be resolved by Canadian courts. Uh, and if they're eventually found to be employees instead of contractors, of course, that will have dramatic implications uh, for Uber and for a number of other companies like it. Uh, and also it may become, uh, given the tea leaves in this case, less popular for these companies to rely on uh, these um, uh, alternative dispute resolution mechanisms where there is, again, no realistic choice being offered those who need to sign on. Uh, or if you think of all the times you hit uh, accept 
uh, online when you're looking to engage with a service provider, uh, how many of us uh, really do read over all the terms that we're hitting accept to and uh, meaningfully engage with them and agree to their implications. So uh, we don't know quite which of those might be upheld, which might not, but Uber uh, puts up a red flag on, uh, on this whole aspect of the, uh, the gig um, economic sector. All right, turning to the uh, last case. Um, uh, and again, these are in no order. All of them are significant. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, you'll see uh, each uh, slide that introduces a case has the case in uh, blue. These are hyperlinks to the case in brief. Uh, and I'm uh, when I um, uh, cut and paste uh, from the case in brief to give you the judges who were in favor or not, You'll see each of their names is hyperlinked. If you want to learn more about the judge or want to uh, include some of the judge's story, that's, again, another resource provided. So uh, this last case, uh, as I uh, indicated in the intro, comes out of a criminal justice setting. It's a case about entrapment. When can the police create the conditions for the commission of a crime and then arrest someone for engaging in it? Uh, this was the crime of um, uh, selling uh, narcotics, uh, in particular uh, cocaine. And uh, the mechanism for doing it uh, was uh, referred to as a dial-a-dope, where uh, a number would uh, be circulating in the community of buyers. You call the number, uh, indicate uh, through some coded references what kind of drug and quantity of drug you're looking for. Then a meet is set up and the actual exchange happens. So the police were getting tips about these numbers and about the names being used, often not people's real names, uh, but um, uh, enough of a tip that the police officers would then call the number, put in a fictitious order for drugs, set up a meet, go to the meet and arrest someone. And that's how uh, Mr. Ahmad and uh, Mr. Williams, uh, a companion um, uh, case within this litigation, uh, came uh, to find themselves arrested. Uh, and uh, the majority of the Supreme Court uh, took uh, the view uh, that um, uh, there was uh, no entrapment in, uh, in, in one case um, and uh, the um, uh, test being used and, and uh, uh, similarly uh, applied the same standard in the other, using a, a well-settled uh, test that requires the police to have a reasonable suspicion before they set the, uh, the trap, as it were, uh, for the commission of a crime. That is to say, if you only have a tip unconnected to anyone's identity, unconnected to uh, anything else about them, and go ahead and arrest them on the basis of uh, simply uh, calling and setting up a, a drug purchase, well, then that may be entrapment because there was no reasonable basis to suspect this person was engaged uh, in a criminal act. On the other hand, if you have information about them, you have uh, either about their identity or a pattern of their using this particular phone number for this particular purpose, that kind of thing, uh, then that won't be uh, entrapment. Uh, and uh, you'll see some uh, reference to reasonable suspicion on this uh, uh, slide. Uh, again, this was a, um, a divided uh, decision and uh, the um, uh, entrapment uh, uh, law on the, uh, on the view of the dissenting judges is too broad, uh, but again, on the majority view, uh, the existing approach to this is, uh, is appropriate. 
And uh, in terms of a takeaway, I'm, I'm uh, citing from one particular paragraph because, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, this um, uh, came on the heels of the protests into systemic racism uh, in the U.S., in Canada, and elsewhere. This decision came out in June, just a week uh, uh, into those protests. Uh, and you'll see the uh, reference to entrapment having a uh, disproportionate impact on poor and racialized communities. Uh, and uh, serving as a breeding ground for racial profiling, uh, among other uh, concerns. Uh, so for this reason, the majority takes a particularly uh, strong view that entrapment is to be discouraged, uh, and uh, there needs to be, again, vigilance by the court uh, to ensure uh, there isn't that uh, discriminatory uh, impact of the use of tools uh, like uh, the one uh, employed in uh, in this case. So it uh, has significance beyond um, uh, just the decision. All right, so moving uh, to my final um, uh, thoughts and conclusion, I said I would say a word about other notable developments. Um, one, uh, which I'm going out of order to the second uh, development listed here, but it flows from the Opmod case, is the Chief Justice um, uh, holding a very... Um, uh, a very uh, highly uh, viewed uh, press conference and uh, a very uh, historic uh, press conference, I think, uh, in which he answered questions about systemic racism in the justice system, the role of the courts uh, in combating or perpetuating uh, some of um, uh, these concerns, uh, and in which he again uh, declined to um, uh, engage with uh, some lines of questioning on um, uh, his own views uh, of the issue, and he preferred instead to point to cases like Ahmad, like Lee, uh, a decision that I discussed in last year's review uh, dealing with um, uh, when uh, the police can be said to have uh, improperly detained someone that again dealt with uh, the systemic racism in the justice system. So the Chief Justice referred to a number of decisions but did not want to have a freestanding statement or declaration on the topic, uh, which uh, has occurred in some U.S. state courts, uh, but again uh, has not been part of the Canadian landscape. Uh, and uh, the press conference, uh, and I have a link to it, uh, discuss uh, the Chief Justice um, uh, Wagner discusses some of his uh, views on uh, this topic, including the diversity of the bench as a important step forward in addressing uh, the. Uh, lack of public confidence uh, that may uh, arise uh, after uh, the protests uh, we've seen this summer. Uh, so there's a number of things of interest, I think, in that press conference. Uh, we also witnessed um, in June the first uh, Supreme Court of Canada Zoom hearing, uh, and I have a picture of it here uh, where you can see uh, the judges participating along with counsel. Interesting uh, to look at the virtual backdrop chosen for all of them. They're wearing robes, again, uh, a little bit distinct from some other uh, Zoom settings um, in the uh, era of COVID-19 uh, justice, uh, but certainly a landmark day for the Supreme Court of Canada. And apart from a glitch or two, um, uh, seemed to unfold uh, uh, successfully. Uh, but uh, it's only a matter of time before we move uh, from uh, this image uh, to that image. Uh, so Zoom uh, glitches will happen. And uh, if you've been watching any of the live stream uh, judicial uh, hearings and 
decision making, and we've had a number of landmarks in that domain. Uh, the uh, uh, the COVID nineteen justice um, uh, era is going to produce uh, some memorable uh, uh, images beyond uh, just uh, ones like this. So. Coming back to the last item, uh, uh, I mentioned this is the first uh, year on the court for um, Justice Kassir, a former uh, dean at the uh, law faculty of uh, McGill and Quebec Court of Appeal judge. Uh, he will be one to watch, uh, a very uh, well-respected uh, jurist and academic uh, who's just uh, making his mark um, in these early cases for the first time. But uh, like bookends, it will also be the last year for Justice um, Abella, who we were discussing a little bit earlier. And uh, she will meet uh, the mandatory retirement at uh, age 75 uh, deadline in uh, summer of next year. Uh, so uh, again, uh, uh, you know, in the over 15 years of her time on the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, she's made uh, remarkable contributions in many areas, lots more to be said about those, no doubt, as um, uh, she enters her final months, uh, but a notable development uh, and, of course, another appointment process for the court um, and the government uh, will come uh, in the months uh, leading up to that. So let me stop there uh, with, again, my thanks um, uh, to you for your patience uh, and, again, apologies for uh, uh, not spending more time on each of these rich cases, but um, hopefully that gives you a taste and a flavor for why I at least uh, find them uh, to be the most significant. And of course, the usual caveat, I speak for myself, not for the uh, Superior Court or colleagues. Um, and I'm, uh, of course, uh, open to uh, uh, lots of uh, constructive input on uh, why some cases shouldn't have been overlooked um, uh, that didn't make the list, and why some of these uh, may not be as significant in your view uh, as I found them. But uh, with those comments, let me uh, pause and see if there's some questions uh, I can tackle from you. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> excuse me. First of all, thank you so much for, for that entire talk. Um, attendees, if you have any questions for Justice Sassen, please feel free to type them into the Q&A function which you can find at the bottom of your screen. Uh, I'll be sort of filtering them and uh, putting them to our valued speaker. Um, so we have one question to start out with. This is a fair bit technical, so uh, don't worry too much if you don't have this at your fingertips. Um, but this is a question from Matthew Wilkes who asked about the reference uh, regenetic testing. Um, and he notes that in in considering the classification question, um, Justice Kara Katsanis uh, finds no degree of seriousness of harm is necessary to prove a criminal purpose. Um, Justice Kassira takes the view that threat must be real in showing a reasoned apprehension of harm. Um, and uh, Matthew asks, with Moldaver and Cote specifically declining to weigh in, what do you think is the test for the classification stage going forward? I suspect that perhaps Matthew has a legal background in addition no, to... No, it's a great... Uh, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's a great question. And uh, and it actually speaks to a broader concern when we're talking about uh, the division of powers and this idea of whether something's going to fall into a federal or a provincial um, uh, basket of authority. And, and the question often is, well, can you just say something is about uh, a harm or does it actually have to have some 
empirical basis, some uh, study or uh, facts on the ground that are, uh, are being uh, invoked? Uh, and the answer generally is uh, no, uh, that, that uh, we take parliament, um, uh, Parliament's word at face value. So where Parliament declares uh, that there is a, a concern or a risk or a need, a mischief uh, is a term often used to address, uh, we don't pierce the veil uh, as courts uh, typically and look behind it uh, unless we think it's a, a colorable attempt to mask something. So if you, uh, in other words, um, uh, you can't simply call everything uh, and act uh, to protect the privacy, autonomy, and health rights of Canadians and then have the entirety of the act deal with insurance contracts. So there are limits to these things. Uh, but it's actually interesting that there was a, uh, a bit of hesitancy uh, from the dissent on even the, the, the naming of this particular uh, act around genetic discrimination. That, uh, in other words, uh, Justice Kassir for the dissenting judges said, well, we can't uh, simply look away once the title is given to us as uh, about discrimination. We need to look at it and say, well, that may be the title, title but what does it do? And of course, the dissent said this really regulates insurance contracts and other goods and services that are all provincially regulated. Uh, so I think, you know, the debate is a real one. Uh, and of course, um, you know, I think uh, the uh, easy uh, cop out that too many judges take and all certainly embrace uh, at all opportunities that you've got to take uh, different cases on their terms. And it is a case by case determination. Uh, I mean, it makes it hard to predict in the future. But I certainly think the majority's view and the view in other cases that we, uh, we take uh, Parliament's uh, description of the uh, mischief or uh, harm that it's seeking to address uh, at face value without requiring that there be uh, what we might call good reasons. Uh, and this is actually a neat distinction from Vavilov where, where a minister makes a decision, not the legislature, but the executive or um, a bureaucrat or public official or agency board commission, well, then we take a different view and we look past it to say, well, what was the reasoning? What was the basis for it? Uh, is that coherent? Is it justifiable in light of all the, uh, uh, the environment of laws and facts around it? We don't do that with, with legislation in the same way, uh, at least not until, um, uh, if it were a charter case, we might do that in justifying a charter breach in section one of the charter. But in the division of powers questions, it really does um, uh, not arise as a, a look into the minds and hearts of parliamentarians, so much as looking at the, at the words on the page uh, in the act that we're left with. And, uh, and so that's, I think, what the majority um, uh, took to heart in this case. Thank you. Um, I have another question that's come in um, that actually addresses a case that you spoke about last year, but its impacts today, um, which is how is the Jordan decision in the time of COVID impacting uh, what you see in the justice system? You know, that's a super uh, interesting area <laughs> as well. And of course, has come up um, a lot in the various uh, government and court uh, discussions around uh, the backlog of, of cases and uh, how significant uh, the challenges are going to be uh, coming back um, uh, to a more regular or normalized um, 
approach to working through these trials. We're going to have this at least four to six month period where there has been very little activity. Uh, and we don't, um, we actually do have a case from this year that uh, could have been one of the five, um, uh, but wasn't, uh, that was a, a doubling down, a reaffirmation of Jordan. So we know it's uh, alive and uh, and well, and the court again uh, is leery of loopholes, and uh, you know it applies here but not there, or here in this way but not there in that. The court's sending message after message that uh, that's not the analysis it's keen to entertain, and those overarching concerns about uh, fairness and uh, ensuring a, a smoothly functioning justice system and avoiding unreasonable delay where. Uh, liberty and, um, uh, and and criminal sanctions are at uh, stake. All of that uh, is going to collide with these very real public health uh, and emergency declarations uh, that made it uh, completely uh, impossible to uh, to move forward with timelines. So, on the civil side, what the attorney general actually did—it's a unique uh, power uh, that uh, the government has—it stopped time. So it said the limitation periods will no longer apply after March 15th until such time as they declare them uh, the clock ticking again. Uh, so uh, that, uh, in Ontario at least, meant on the civil side that the normal timelines that you might be running up against uh, that limit when you can bring a lawsuit were all going to be stayed. On the criminal side, it's a more complicated uh, process, but I think it's fair to say there will be some balance struck between legitimate delays related to the emergency declaration and the realities on the ground, uh, and delays that may have coincided with this period of time, but, but may not be able to be justified uh, in the same way. So uh, that sorting out will happen, uh, no doubt, in, in the months to come, but I would expect we'll see uh, that kind of wrestling with uh, the competing realities. Uh, uh, it doesn't, in other words, uh, whether it's for COVID or any other reason, doesn't change the, the harms that delay can do, uh, but uh, obviously the uh, government uh, uh, and lawyers involved in these cases uh, weren't in control of all the necessary parts to move cases forward that they normally would be, and that has to be taken into consideration as well. Sure. Uh, so another question here um, about Uber. Um, do you think that if the arbitration fees were not so enormous and the place chosen for arbitration was more accessible, there would be an impact on the outcome in this case. So, you know, I think the, uh, it's an interesting question. And, and again, I think we uh, need to see uh, some additional cases uh, that attempt to apply Uber first. Uh, I think we will see those uh, in, in the coming um, uh, weeks and months, but I think the, uh, the future courts that look at this are either going to take Uber and, and Heller to be about more than this one clause in the contracts that Uber drivers sign uh, are going to take it to be, uh, again, a, a red flag uh, to uh, a whole variety of things that uh, are part of this construction of relationships as independent contractors or framing uh, of uh, the Employment Standards Act as not applicable. Uh, and I, the breadth or narrowness of that interpretation is uh, hard to predict, but certainly the language used by the Supreme Court uh, looks indicative of, uh, by the majority, 
indicative of a court that's not looking to provide narrow guidance uh, just to the class um, uh, of which uh, Heller was the representative in this case. Uh, and the language in particular about unequal bargaining power, improvident uh, contracts uh, that are, uh, uh, again, un unfairly imposed uh, is broad language that certainly could give rise to broad application. Makes sense. Um, so we have we have one more question at this time. So everyone, if you want to ask anything, get it in now. Um, this question uh, starts. Uh, thank you for the insightful discussion. Um, could you say anything about the Anka decision of, in Sullivan and the defense of voluntary intoxication in cases of automatism? Of course, this was a decision that uh, got a lot of media attention this year um, with a lot of different people having different understandings of what the decision actually was. No, I'm, ha I'm happy to. And let me um, uh, first clarify, because I think I was uh, in discussing um, uh, Ahmad uh, talking about the outcome in that case, and I want to clarify that uh, the outcome uh, was that there wasn't reasonable suspicion in either of the cases giving rise um, uh, to uh, the Supreme Court appeal. So in, in that sense, uh, uh, these convictions are, are both uh, set aside on grounds of entrapment. And, and uh, again, the courts of appeal and <coughs> court of appeal differed on the two. And uh, I just want to make sure I'm not leaving um, an incorrect uh, view of the case. And certainly the case in brief uh, does a great job of laying that out. Uh, turning, though, to, um, uh, to the case that attracted a great deal of attention, again, uh, particularly because uh, when we look at extreme uh, intoxication and the crimes committed in that state, uh, it again can have narrow or broad implications. And the uh, public interest groups, uh, some of whom were involved in the case, others were uh, close observers of how these cases unfold, particularly in sexual assault uh, uh, context, uh, saw real alarm bells uh, over the um, uh, upholding of this kind of uh, defense. Uh, those who were involved, particularly in the criminal defense community, uh, and, uh, uh, and looking at this kind of within those confines, saw it uh, very narrowly as uh, cases only at the most extreme uh, end where there is this difficulty in dealing with the fact that all crimes need to have an act uh, and a mental element, uh, and, and how to ascertain that in context of extreme and in, in, uh, intoxication. So um, I think it is very much uh, a product of, did you take a narrow or broad view? Uh, but, you know, uh, again, a, in a somewhat constrained and diplomatic um, uh, twist that won't surprise anyone as a judge, uh, I, I tended not to come down on one side or the other as to whether I'm reading it narrowly or broadly but rather took real, um, uh, took real opportunity from the debate that ensued in social media, in, in mainstream media, in classrooms, uh, about what um, uh, the sexual assault um, uh, criminal justice dynamics experience uh, are from the applicable law to, uh, again, much of that lived experience of survivors and, uh, and others, and an opportunity to really reflect on uh, what kind of legal system we want uh, and what the implications of it are. And again, the balancing of those criminal defense um, uh, rights with overarching uh, uh, and important goals 
uh, around wanting uh, to ensure we're not uh, dis, uh, disincenting or deterring survivors from coming forward and not uh, re-traumatizing in the course of criminal um, uh, adjudication. All these issues, I think, were uh, brought about um, were brought up in new ways because of the case. So, so for me, it was an important discussion. Uh, although I'll leave for the experts uh, whether that narrow or broad implication of the decision itself uh, should uh, should guide our thinking. And certainly, from a classroom point of view, uh, you know, very uh, um, important issues to engage with. I said this last year as well. Some of these cases, um, that one for sure. Um, the uh, Nevson case as well, very disturbing factual allegations and so very careful work, I think, in how to take it into an educational setting uh, and present it in a way that is going to be uh, appropriate and engaging. Uh, but again, uh, these are uh, uh, very, very difficult topics um, uh, to simply uh, throw out there. And, uh, and I hope uh, all those uh, tuning in who are looking at their uh, curriculum are uh, giving thought to uh, using their expertise to bring these important issues to uh, to a classroom setting where they can inform uh, important uh, discussions. And I wish them uh, well, have a huge admiration for the work they do, and look forward to continuing to engage with them through, uh, through OGEN. Your Honor, thank you very much. I'm, I'm putting my money on the first case to make it into a classroom being the Uber case. That's the one that, I, that, I'm, that I'm carrying through. Um, <clears throat> we're a little over time, so I'm going to just thank everybody for, uh, for participating and for sticking around. Um, please, if there are other questions that occur to you, feel free to get in touch with myself or Michelle or Christy. You can find us on the OGEN website. We're happy to follow up with you on these things. Um, just take a second now to thank Justice Sawson for his time and his insight. These were super interesting. I, I have questions, but they're nobody else's business other than mine, so we'll save that stuff for later. Uh, so there we are. Uh, thank you very much. And for the audience, uh, keep your eye on OGEN's Twitter and things to see what's, uh, what's next and when it's coming out. Um, thank you very much, and we'll see you all soon. Take care. Thank you.